When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Well, we're over the hump. Which hump? Of the year. By the time this episode comes out, we'll be through the summer solstice weekend, midsummer. The days will be getting shorter again. I know, but I find that really depressing. Why are you starting by saying that? Oh, well, you know, I just thought, here's something to look forward to. What about for midsummer solstice next year? You and I, presuming that social distancing is over, we we could go to some kind of druid gathering. You look a bit like a druid. I think I would look great in a in a druid outfit. What is a druid outfit, though? I don't know, some kind of wizardy robes. Do you not think that that would suit me? No. Nice and airy. Get a lot of get a lot of ventilation in there. On on the subject of um, robes, outfits, yeah. outfits that uh, we, yeah. we, we, last week I can't quite remember how it came up, but we were talking about whether you had ever had a goth slash yeah. emo phase yeah and I, I i asked if there were any reasons to be cheerful listeners yeah. who, who who could mock up a picture of you as a as a goth oh and somebody did it didn't they it's amazing we got this photo from Stuart hendry he um titled it ed and the millie banshees after Susie and the banshees yeah and look at that i i think this is a great look for you do you think i should go for that we're all riding my tricycle with chutney on the back <laughs> Uh, just to sort of, you know, have the full house. I'm actually doing a test drive of the tricycle on on Saturday. Oh, hang on. We're, we're going to put the goth to one side. T- tell me more about this. Well, I don't know. It's just, I mean, like, I'm, I'm basically, I've got swept up in sort of tricycle euphoria. Uh, and basically, Justine has sort of, Justine has sort of, you, you know, used the kind of relatively positive reception that the idea has got on the podcast to kind of pursue her kind of crackers maracas idea uh to fruition and so now i'm going to be sort of um doing the test drive tomorrow oh this is good will you tell us where it is and then no i was going to say we could line the route but of course it will have already happened by the time the podcast comes. yeah out. no definitely so i'll but we'll I'll, I'll update you as to how it goes 
What colour tricycle are you considering getting? I don't think we're at that stage yet. I will do for you, for a, for a very good price, if you want a Union Jack paint job on it, I'd do it for £900 million. Pounds. Thousand. No, nine hundred million is how much it would cost for me to. Do. Oh, 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 I see. You do it for nine hundred million. That's a really good yeah. thought. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll ask Boris Johnson to sort of pay for it. <laughs> would there be any room for me on the trike? Uh, could you get trick nuts on the back so that I could stand with my hands on your shoulders? Well, there, well, as you know, we've had so many different emails from listeners about this that there's obviously lots of different ways, but. I was absolutely smitten by an email about the pod bike. Have you seen the email about the pod bike? Yes. Yes, I have. Yeah. So so we had this email from Jan Godfrey, and, it, and it's titled something better than a tricycle. Jan lives in uh, in Stavanger in, in Norway. I think I've pronounced that correctly. And, and, and basically says that um, uh, cycling all year round can be a bit difficult here in Norway when it gets cold and icy, but there is a solution, a pod bike. Here in Stavanger, a local engineer started a company with a new form of electric bike with four wheels and a see-through casing. It's a bit like a small car where you sit and cycle. It even has signal lights and window wipers for when it rains. Then nearing the end of testing, should hopefully start sales soon. You can see the website here, www.podbike.com. I mean, honestly, I kind of, I mean, it's, it's bloody expensive, but I thought it, 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 it like seemed great. I mean, you can go up to 25 kilometers an hour electric and up to 60 with a, extra pedal power. Wow. I mean, basically, it made me think of the Sinclair C5, which I did actually think about. Yes. But I thought about this some weeks ago and I thought, whatever, why did it go wrong, the Sinclair C5? I don't know. So Clive Sinclair, for those who don't know, designed the ZX Spectrum. Uh, and the, what was it called? ZX81. Of, of which we were both big fans. Oh, which, in fact, they brought, brought us together where we discussed the popular game Manic Miner, which I kind of got through all stages of, uh, uh past le- up to level 20, uh, when I was a child. Uh, and it brought us together in our, the original, uh, our original first date interview where you also asked me whether I'd ever done a Mooney, but, but leave that to one side. Uh, <laughs> because I, I digress. But, but anyway, St- Clive Sinclair designed this, um, c5 and it was sort of basically greeted with like massive contempt wasn't it the c5 yeah it was a punchline and and he be he became a bit of a punchline he had this idea to revolutionize transport with these i mean it was it was very much like this pod bike that you're describing but what why what i'm doing now is i'm just on ebay seeing if you can buy can you and can you you can get a sinclair c5 for 360 pounds are you serious yes a one-person battery electric velomobile, technically an ele- electrically assisted pedal cycle. Will you send me the eBay? Will you send me the eBay um, thing? Of course I will. All I would say is when you're test driving the tricycle at the weekend, just hold off until you've also tried a pod bike and a Sinclair C5. Yeah, I, I think it's something kind of retro <laughs> chic about the Sinclair C5. Yeah, it, it looked great with the uh, Union Jack paint job. Yeah. Should we talk about, I mean, honestly, I could talk up for absolutely hours about this. But we probably shouldn't. Shall we talk about what we're talking about? Yes. This week, we're returning to the question of our understanding of British history. The Black Lives Matter protests in the UK have led to renewed calls to change our approach to history in schools and in wider society. Campaigners argue that we need to both address the widespread lack of knowledge about black British history, as well as understanding how the legacies of slavery and empire shape racial inequality today. We've talked a lot recently about our episode from last summer, on teaching about the British Empire in schools, and I, and I strongly uh, recommend uh, that people listen to that if they haven't. 
But while that's a good place to start this week's guests have ideas for going beyond it, we're talking to Lavinia Stennett, who set up a great organisation called the Black Curriculum that teaches black British history in schools. We're speaking to Lavinia about their work and what they're now calling for from government. Then we're talking to Richard Benjamin from the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool about how museums shape our approach to history. And finally, we're talking to Michelle Gale and Ruth Ibeg Buna from the World Reimagined about their plans for a public art project to transform our understanding of Britain's past. Sounds good. Uh, so, what's your reason to be cheerful this week, Ed? Well, my reason to be cheerful does actually relate to the theme of our episode, and it's a more—it's—I'd say it's a more sort of serious one than um, maybe some of the reasons to be cheerful uh, of the past. But I think it is really it is really on brand for us. We, and you may have noticed this. Um, Black Lives Matter is now significantly more popular than Donald Trump in the United States. And indeed, there was a clip going round on Fox News of, of the right wing host Tucker Carlson saying this. And as political scientist Drew Linzer noted, BLM is the single most favorably viewed national political organization or politician in America right now. Wow. Oh, that's just, I mean, it's just fantastic. And, you know, it's eating away at him as well. I mean, don't you think that's amazing? Yeah, that's incredible. Now, now, and just in case you wonder whether this is a new thing, the answer is it is um, a similar. So 62% of likely voters now have a favourable opinion of Black Lives Matter, while 32% have a very favourable one. Um, so, so like a significant majority have a favourable opinion. Uh, this result represents a stunning turnaround. A similar poll conducted in June 2016, for example, found that only 37% of likely voters had a favourable view of Black Lives Matter, while a majority viewed it unfavourably. I mean, that is, I mean, it is such an interesting thing about, I mean, obviously, you know, the horrific murder of George Floyd has, 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 has led to some of this, but, but it, it must also say something about the way the movement has built popular support. Yeah, it's brilliant. And also, um, Donald Trump's becoming less popular, which is also brilliant. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? Well, mine, mine's not as good as yours. I'll be honest about it. I was, uh, I was, I was struggling. Don't worry about that. Don't feel bad about that. And this, this will have been and gone by the time the episode comes out. But my reason to be cheerful is Father's Day, in particular. My son this morning, and it's Friday as we're speaking. Uh, he ran into the bedroom and he went. Daddy, happy Father's Day for Sunday, and we're going to surprise you with a blueberry pie. Aww. So I already know what my surprise is going to be, and I'm extremely excited about Isn't it. Isn't that great? I tell you, actually, this is sort of slightly off topic, but I had a sort of incident this week where we've had a sort of family argument, and one of my children, who I won't name, refused to finish a story that they started telling. Like the Leisure Centre story. Well, exactly. He was starting to tell this story <laughs> and then he got really annoyed and he was like, We're not gonna, I'm not going to tell you the end of the story. And, and, and Justine and I were saying, oh, please tell us the end of the story. And he's like, no, no, I'm not. So I then told him about the, the, the kind of, you know, fateful Leisure Centre story, which you had failed to, uh, failed to tell me the ending of. And, and I think it lightened the mood. So, you know. Thanks. Basically, you're saying my reaction to being interrupted during the, a story is the same as a child's. That's what I'm saying, yeah. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to start by talking to Lavinia Stennett, who is the founder of the Black Curriculum, which is a social enterprise addressing the lack of black British history taught in schools. Uh, Lavinia, hello. Thanks for coming on and talking to us. Hi, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, well, let, let's let's start with the basics. Do you want to just tell us what the Black Curriculum is and what what the story behind it coming into existence is? 
Yeah, sure. So the Black Curriculum is a social enterprise that works to teach and support the teaching of black history in schools all year round. Um, so not just in October, um, in, an, in an aim to improve a sense of identity for all young people in Britain. Um, currently, there is no black history on the national curriculum. And um, with the academization of schools, I guess there's a lot of freedom to teach it. But we're finding that there's no um, impetus to teach it so we provide teacher training we also provide workshops in schools for young people as well and we're campaigning and this is why we're doing what we're doing at the moment the story behind it I'd say there was like a small kind of like incremental things that made me get here but I'd say the main um, catalyst event was when I was in New Zealand and I studied there for three months um, learning indigenous land law so Maori land law and what struck me was just the fact that they had gone through like hundreds of years of colonialism and kind of like similar events, obviously in different contexts um, with like land being like a main kind of function of yeah the way colonialism operated there. But they were, they were so proud of their culture and they really immersed me in it. I was like in lectures, like with my lectures crying and just being very open and honest about how um, colonialism impacted them. And I was like, we don't really have that here, like. I feel like even in university, with people kind of telling you about the history of colonialism, it's very kind of clinical. And I didn't feel there was a lot of emotion or um, kind of like lived experiences involved in that. And yeah, studying there with them telling me their own experiences was just really powerful. And so I was like, right, we have to do something like this in Britain. And I came back really energised and um, that's how it really started. I pulled together my friends and um, Bethany and Lisa who are the two girls that have worked closely with me from the start, helped to build it. So, yeah, we're here now. <laughs> well, that, that sounds, I mean, it just sounds fantastic. It sounds like a great idea. And for, for people like me who don't really know about the education system and the, the national curriculum, can we talk a little bit more about, you touched on it there, the, the current situation. So October is Black History Month and, and some teaching happens during then. And, and then the other thing you were describing, it's like that there are modules, but they're, optional can you just talk to me a little bit more about the situation that a history teacher would would find themselves in with regards to black history at the minute yes I think it really just depends on like what kind of school you're in I think what we're we're seeing is that there's a very fractured education system where you have state schools you have private schools and um yeah with state schools like some of them have the flexibility to teach what they want um and you find that mostly with academies they follow their own kind of curriculum um but the national curriculum is a national curriculum and it's supposed to basically offer kind of guidelines as to what is mandatory, what teachers should be able to teach and like what examples are important for different key stages. So from key stage uh, two to key stage four, there are no clear cut examples of black history um, or black histories um, within Britain. So, for example, you'd be taught the Holocaust and yeah, there are other kind of periods, but there's no kind of like examples that are clear about Britain's role with Africa, Britain's role with Asia, for example, and um, the lived experiences of black people in Britain. So because of that, what we have is that some schools, well, some teachers come from a background of like knowing this information so they're just like right I'm going to teach anyway um but not all other teachers have that kind of background and so it's very hard for them if there's no examples in the national curriculum and there's no resources that are accessible to them to teach it they're not going to teach it um so what we find is that in October some schools will teach black history but coming from a perspective of more slavery so again just like focusing on like one side of um 
British history, which is quite dehumanising, but not kind of roping in other narratives that are more complex and nuanced and deserve to be taught to young people so they can understand the full picture of Britain. And, and tell us, Lavinia, what kind of response do you get to the sessions you run with teachers and students on Black British history? Uh, is there an enthusiasm for, pe- for people to, that you find from people about filling the gaps? Mm. So I remember our first first session, our pilot in October, and there was such a, we was in a school, so there was a lot of like, I guess, apprehension at first, like, who are you guys? Like, we don't know you, who are you? Like, to come in and tell us about... Paint us a picture, where was this school, <laughs> Yeah, Lavinia? okay, cool. So we went to a school in South London, um, and it's mainly, yeah, it's mainly made up of working class and BAME um, young people. Um, so what we saw was that those young people were so excited to see us, but in terms of the information that we're coming in to provide, I think at first it was like, oh, let, let's proceed with caution. Um, yeah. And as we started teaching, I think what we saw was like the wall starting to break down. They would like tell us about certain experiences that they've had. Um, you saw like, for example, in terms of like the way in which we lead our classes is very collaborative. And so in smaller groups, they'll be just like talking about things that, they haven't had the opportunity to express before. So it was a very kind of dynamic session. There was a lot of ideas. and So about the, how the history related to that, to, to, to them. To, it was not just about the history, exactly. but the, the way the history related to them. To them, yeah, and what they see outside of school and like, and what they hear on television. And I think these are things that are so key and people, young people are experiencing it, but the school kind of like structure doesn't um, necessarily facilitate um, that kind of space. I'm not saying all schools, but... Um, yeah, I just think schools as a structure, it didn't allow, it doesn't allow all young people to bring in their experiences. So, in fact, it was quite liberating for many of the young people, and it's really empowering to see young people just like be really excited and um, take something from it and want to do more because um, it doesn't just stop there. And give us give us some examples of the kinds of things that you're you're talking to 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 young people about what aspects of of black history yeah so um our syllabus is basically divided into like different modules so we take a very thematic approach where we don't kind of like have history geography music it's kind of all interwoven in one so the themes is land and the environment so we in that we kind of teach about um environmental injustices like grenfell um, but also taking a more historical approach to actually think about how um the land and belonging themes such as belonging are kind of interconnected so we use the example of the Bristol bus boycotts in that as well um another module is also migration so we kind of explore um figures such as John Blanc and like um yeah just historical figures even in the Roman times um Jacques Francis um why they came here what were their experiences like um and kind of moving on into the latter half of the 18th century to explore the role of empire in migration and what are the reasons, you know, contextualising why people actually came to Britain. And I think that's been really common in terms of the workshops that we've done. Like everyone likes to know migration um, and also art history. So there's music. And I think that's a really lovely, that's my favourite anyway. I love that that module um, with reggae, calypso. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Paul Stevenson there. Just, we covered it on a previous episode, but tell us, tell people a little bit about Paul Stevenson and the, and the Bristol bus boycott because, you know, it's always sort of struck us that, you know, 
you learn about Rosa Parks, but you don't know, we don't, we don't tend to learn about what happened in Britain. Yeah, precisely. I think there's a bit of a miseducation there in terms of what the civil rights era entailed and how inspiration was drawn, not only from America, but globally, there was different civil rights movements. And in Britain, um, the Bristol bus boycotts was one of the main, I guess, catalyst events um, for race relations in the UK. Um, and I think even within that, there are key figures like Roy Hackett, Paul Stevenson, you had Carmen Beckford, who was like one of the first... Um, um, black women to be elected to a council in Bristol to help shape that. And I think what it what it does um, for us when we understand um, how civil rights movements were kind of um, shaped here, it allows us to understand that like there is just a whole kind of like backlog of, uh, I guess, oppression in the UK and the things that black people here have done, it's not just like Martin Luther King, like we had our own. And, and for me, it's fan, it's just fantastic that it's not even in London, it's in Bristol, you know? Um, and I think Absolutely. it's so, so key that we actually know, um, yeah, what black people have done and like how they, how their work has been enshrined now in law that allows us to be all in, in principle fairly um, treated in the UK. And it's important, isn't it, that this just goes, goes, you know, there's obviously an important need to teach about the history of empire and slavery. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about the fact that it isn't properly talked about. But it's important to go beyond that as well, isn't it? 100%. Because I think if we just focus, again, I think we can talk about empire, but in a way where it's contextualised. So, you know, who gained the wealth? Where did the wealth go? What was the kind of wealth that came to Britain? Um, so I think that that aspect's really important, but also just not focusing on the negatives, because... Um, yeah, what I have seen in some of our classes as well is that it, it does get a bit distressing for students to just continually be faced of like, you know, the history of oppression in Britain. It's like, can we learn something positive? So I do think just roping in really positive examples and icons and pioneers um, within um, black histories is really key as well. And it allows young people to um, see that there are many things that they can aspire to, all young people as well. And it's not just black people were slaves. On the issue of um, the what you're calling for from government, say something about what you're asking um the government to do in terms of the national curriculum and black british history yeah so we're asking um the government at the moment to meet with us to discuss how we can embed black histories into the curriculum um from citizenship to pshe to history um, and also English, so that we take a wider approach from key stage one to key stage four, um, so that we don't have to, I guess, rely on individual teachers to do this work, but there's a policy that says this is mandatory, and I think that is really important. So that is what our campaign is focused on, on doing to embed black histories into the national curriculum. We've had support from over 50 MPs. Um, thousands of people have downloaded and emailed their own MPs, emailed Gavin Williamson um, to support our TPH 365 campaign, which stands for Teach Black History 365. Um, the deadline is Monday, which is the 22nd Windrush Day. Um, and we're hoping to see seek a response from Gavin Williamson to have a meeting to discuss what we could do to change the national curriculum in that sense and embed black history. Um, but I think in terms of actually just supporting our work, it is about raising the awareness, petitioning their schools to have us in their schools, also encouraging teachers to take up our teacher training and also donating. Um, and everything is on the website, which is www.theblackcurriculum.com. And if teachers um, are listening to this and think, wow, that sounds really good, give us give us an example or two of what, 
what other teachers have done to sort of take this up mm. so because it might you know it might inspire others mm. okay so in terms of taking up our program um what what we encourage teachers to do is continue that learning because i do think it is like it's so vital that teachers are able to connect with each other and share that learning um post our sessions so one of the kind of feedbacks that we've got from teachers is that they um are starting to embed more black histories into their classes through um visual images through using different resources so not just books like using videos on youtube um and just like weaving in different examples um ensuring that there's like a wide range of literature that's out there um and there's more representation for students so again like bringing us in um so that students can actually see that look i can do this with my life as well and this is what black people in britain are doing can I just ask about you, Lavinia? What were you doing before you got involved in this? And and how I, I, you've said very interestingly at the beginning about how you got involved in it. But what were you doing before? How you know what's the experience been like? Yeah. Um. So I literally graduated from SOAS last year, July, and at the time of founding the Black Curriculum, I was in the middle of my dissertation. So, um, we founded last year, January. Um. And yeah, like I've literally just gone from uni straight into this. So this is like my full time work at the moment. And what's the experience like? Rewarding? Frustrating? A mix. Equal measure of both? <laughs> it's a mix. Like Sometimes I'm just like, oh, this is really, really heavy and it's much bigger than me. But at the same time, I feel like it just gives me a purpose and yeah, helps me to just want to just do more. Well, Lavinia Stennett, it's incredibly inspiring what you're doing. I'm sure you'll get lots of our listeners who are interested in, in I hope, trying to uh, support your campaign. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Now, to take the conversation on, recent weeks have seen renewed calls for a new national museum to document the British Empire and the UK's role in the transatlantic slave trade. There already is an international slavery museum in Liverpool, and I'm glad to say that we're joined by the head of it, Dr. Richard Benjamin. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks for having us. So for those who don't know, what is the International Slavery Museum and how long has it been around? 
Yeah, well, well, it is the national. It is a national museum, so you, you're quite right there. Uh, maybe the name doesn't always help because it's international, but we are actually a you know DCMS funded national museum on the on the subject. We opened in 2007, so on the 23rd of August, which was a uh, big year for the UK. It was the bicentenary of the abolition of the Slave Trade Act. Uh, so there was a lot of activity in the UK, which I know you, you'll be aware of. Uh, so we were funded to open uh, in that year. But just one thing I would say is it, it kind of came about uh, from what was called the Transatlantic Slavery Gallery. And that was in the Merseyside Maritime Museum since the early 90s. But it was a gallery. It wasn't a proper museum as such. So when we opened, we got the uh, status of being a national museum. And why is it particularly important to have a slavery museum in Liverpool? Well, look, Liverpool was the epicentre of the transatlantic slave trade from uh, you know the 18th century to the 19th century. I mean, Bristol and London were, of course, involved as well, as were many smaller towns, you know, such as Whitehaven, etc. Uh, and a lot of scholars have written a lot of research on that. But there had been a long narrative in Liverpool, uh, a narrative that had started way back in, you know, the 80s, uh, that was about uh, there being a facility in Liverpool that spoke honestly about the city's history and the Liverpool's black community. And that was led by black activists who then worked with people in the museum and they said, OK, we want a museum here. And that, that's how it came about. And for those of us who, who are a bit ignorant, probably I include myself in this, about Liverpool's role in the slave trade you say you were the epicenter say just say a bit more to us richard because i think our listeners will find it interesting yeah well you know there's the triangular trade so that uh, ships were were fitted out uh, with cargo and goods uh, in various uk ports and then they set sail to various parts of of west africa and people were enslaved there uh, and obviously a lot of people have documented how horrendous uh, that was and then uh, people would have been forcibly taken to the Americas, and that's everywhere from, from Cuba to, to North America. Numbers-wise, well, you'll get some historians saying that there were 11, 12 million people who were enslaved, taken over the Middle Passage, and that'll go up to some scholars saying that's over 50 million, and it's still very debatable. Uh, ships that left Liverpool engaged in this trade, you're looking at upwards of 4,000. So, you know, that's a lot of ships over a lot of years, and a lot of people, influential people, mayors of the city... Uh, we're engaged in this as well. So, and over you know, what period would that have taken place, Richard? Yeah, we're well, looking at seventy-five to one hundred years. So, you know, from the you know sixteen ninety-nine was the first slaver ship that went that uh, went to Barbados from from Liverpool, but then it grew. It, London and Bristol kind of had more slaver ships first that left for for many years, but then Liverpool took took over, took it to a new level. Uh, and that's why Liverpool became the epicentre until the abolition of slavery uh, in uh, 1807. That's really helpful and interesting. How do you think museums ha- can help in terms of your experience at the International Slavery Museum? How, how do they help to shape our understanding of the past? And, and, and what role can they play in addressing the kind of unexplored parts um, uh, uh, and maybe the kind of airbrushed parts of, of British and world history? Well, look, museums, so most museums will tell you this, and we'd say this in Liverpool, that, you know, we're, we're storytellers. You know, we, still t- we tell stories and you engage people with those stories. 
but equally it's who you who the stories have been spoken by so you're giving you're trying to give a voice to people that have often been voiceless so with someone like the slavery museum we say it's very much african agency we, we try to have the voice coming from people who are african or the uh, uh descendants of people are african it isn't necessarily a you know eurocentric starting point which is often the case and that's why there's a big issue within the country at the moment be about decolonizing museum spaces and decolonizing statues and decolonizing curriculums it's it's whose voice you're hearing isn't it and that's often not a diverse voice uh, and museums are educational you know that's part of what they do it's the it's the your usp it's to bring people together to educate particularly younger people so that they can be uh, citizens with a broad understanding of, of British and world history. So so we at the Slavery Museum, that's a big part of what we do. We've had hundreds of thousands of, of young people come through the doors. Four million visitors in total. Uh, and we're quite a provocative museum. You know, we talk about the legacies of slavery. We, we have a standpoint. You know, we do believe that issues around racism uh, and various forms of oppression today, hate crime, that they have their roots in the transatlantic slave trade and attitudes that would kind of shape them. Given that it, 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 there could be some tough facts that visitors are confronted with, how do you go about getting people across the door in the first place? You have that debate, should you enjoy uh, a trip to something like the International Slave Museum? You make it interactive. You know, that's why you have education session or handling sessions. So, you know, we have a great education team, a learning and participation team, who are very engaging individuals. You know, so even though the, the subject matter is incredibly serious, you know, when you're talking about human rights and, you know, the legacies of slavery, but you do it in an engaging manner and you have to be very good at your job to be able to, to do that. And as a team, I would like to think we're kind of very accessible. Uh, so a lot of it is to do with how you are yourself and how you act. The International Slave Museum's located in the, a larger Merseyside Maritime Museum. We're a separate museum, but we're in the same building. And we're on the Royal Albert Dock which is the most visited part of Liverpool now that it's it's uh, you know a lot different than it was in the 90s. So you've got over 2 million, 3 million visitors that come to Liverpool as a city generally and a lot of those people go to the Albert Dock. On 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 something you mentioned there the 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 legacy of slavery and how it the the repercussions and how it affects Britain today. What 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 tell us a bit more about your approach? to uh to telling that story and getting people to think about that yeah well we've always the way we've gone about it and, and i'm not saying everyone's always agreed with this we've, we've tried to make it very personal so for instance i've talked about our education program so all museums have educational spaces you know that's what that's they all have that but in the ism ours is called the anthony walker education center and i'm sure you and your listeners will know this so anthony walker young black man murdered uh, just outside Liverpool, uh, well, over over ten years ago, almost fifteen years ago now, and uh, we spoke with his family, G. Walker, Dominique Walker, before we opened, and we said, "Look, we, we might be using some images or some footage of of Anthony's life," and uh, we didn't necessarily need permission to do that. Museums often get, you know, copyright and permission, but we wanted to do it different, and we said to the family, "Are you happy with this?" And they understood what we were trying to do. Uh, and we've got a long, uh, we've had a relationship with them since 2007. I'm a trustee of the Anthony Walker Foundation. I have been for a decade. And we named our education room after Ample. We're a hate crime reporting centre. You know, and, you know, how many museums can say that they're a hate crime, 
Cape Crown Reporting Centre. It's not what museums do, but it's what we do because we want to be part of the fight against racism and discrimination. Let's do that. So that's that's an example of how we like to go about things. And and when you think about other countries and, and the relationship they have with their um, sort of colonial past and, and slavery, can you look around the world and see other former um, countries which benefited from the slave trade who, who, who've sort of got a better grasp on that? Yeah, I wish I could say yes, to be honest with you, but I don't know if that is the case. I think a lot of this is to do with certain institutions, museums often, and individuals, activists, historians, who've kind of taken on that that role. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in the US, and one would think that, that maybe the US would have this system of education which would be very open and honest. Now, it depends what state you're in. Some of them don't talk about it, others may mention it. Over here, we've got the national curriculum. It's not compulsory, and we've got a national curriculum, which is a very good national curriculum. But I'm, uh, you know, I'm not going to say how old I am. But I remember I was the first year that did GCSEs, and I can't remember much about transatlantic slavery in the education that I had. Uh, now, in in the um, you know the wake of events following the killing of George Floyd, and and yeah, the protests and conversations that have been had, the, there there are calls from some people for a new British Museum of Empire or of slavery. Do you, th- do you think we need museums like yours? in different parts of the country to help people get to grips with the past? Well, look, there's two things here. One, uh, I I tell people openly, we're we're a national museum. We're funded by DCMS going. And I know how difficult it is to get to that stage because I've been trying to get there for 10 years with colleagues. So if I'm being, and I'm a a pragmatist, so is there going to be another large-scale museum of that amount? No, I don't think there is. So let's be practical about it. Should there be facilities within the cities whether in existing museums or even new facilities that are museums uh, that discuss more openly the city's role. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we, for instance, have a a dialogue with with people in Glasgow, for instance, who've been kind of grappling with this discussion for a number of years as as well, as as Bristol and London have. But Glasgow, in most recent years, it's been very vocal. So we work with community activists in Glasgow. We, uh, we've we advised on some of the work that we've done. We work with the museum service there. We work with their, their equivalent of the city council there. And uh, we're not the oracle of everything, but we've, we've been through it and we, we know that it's about trust. These discussions are long and sensitive. So what I would say is, do I think there needs to be another national museum? No. Just because we're not in London, doesn't mean you can't be a national museum. We're in Liverpool and we're a national museum. Should there be more investment, maybe, and more facilities focused on slavery and empire in the cities you've just mentioned? Yes. And I would be happy, we would be happy to to partner with them. Uh, But it was a long, hard fight to get where we are in Liverpool. And uh, I meant no excuses for that. You know, we're a national and we're looking to move on ourselves. Well, look, um, Richard... Uh, you've you've really presented an inspiring story about the work that you're doing at the International Slavery Museum. Uh, we hope that this podcast will encourage those people who haven't visited to 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 come and um, to come and visit. Um, I've quite often. I've I've never been, and I'm definitely definitely going to come the next time I'm up. Oh yeah, well, coffee and cake for you if you do come. There you I mean, go. Oh, def- definitely then, yeah. And coffee and cake for all of our listeners. Thank you, uh, Richard <laughs> Benjamin. Thank, thank you so much for joining us. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having us.
And finally, we're going to talk about a, a brilliant project called World Reimagined with Ruth Ibegbuna, who's a social entrepreneur, and Michelle Gale, who you know as, as well as many other things, has been a singer and an actor. Hello, both. Hello. And, and Michelle, <laughs> you know, we, we know you from the pop charts and, and, mm. uh, and, and from EastEnders. But we, just before we started recording, we were trying to figure out if Ed and I are slightly too old to have seen you in Grange Hill. And I think Ed is, but I'm not, excitingly. He yeah, always you... rubs it in. He always rubs <laughs> it in, Michelle. Sorry, honestly. Ed, for being so old. Yeah, um... I just... <laughs> He just always makes me feel like I'm of a different generation. So, than so, him. so Gonch, Gonch was one of your classmates then. Yes, that's right. In fact, he was one of my, he was my boyfriend, Gonch, for a little bit. We dated. Wow. In the Great wow. World. And, and was Mrs. McCluskey the head teacher then? Yes, she was. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. This, this is Go all ahead. starting to sound, sound very familiar to me. Uh, so, can we start just ask, asking you about the world reimagined? Do you want to tell us what it is and, and what it will involve? Yes, the World Reimagine, it's a mass participation art education project where um, if you can visualise 100 globes across cities in the UK that will reflect um, different themes surrounding the transatlantic slave trade. Um, And that is because we will be uh, teaching people that we work with, with working with artists, working with communities and schools to educate everything around the transatlantic slave trade including what africa was like before slavery up until what the transatlantic slave trade experience was actually like and then further digging further into what it means to be black and british in this country we want to be able to celebrate being black and british and i think many black british people feel reticent about that they feel unwanted they feel that um their history hasn't been told and has actually been ignored and it's very hard sometimes to go Proudly, I'm black and British. And this is a moment for us, we see, to be able to celebrate being black and British. And that's why so many of the Glows will also honour descendants of slaves who have done well, despite um, the system that is sometimes so stacked against them. Do you want to tell us a little bit, both of you, about how you came to be involved in it and, and why it was something that you felt passionate about doing personally? Yeah, I think we've got the same key person, haven't we, Ruth? You can start. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was, I was approached by someone I've worked with in the past called Dennis, who was um, working with um, a great group of people who'd already been working on this for a couple of years. Um, I have a background as a teacher for many years and then subsequently worked with a lot of young people, especially a lot of black young people in the north of England, who felt that their education had not told them anything. You know, we... We read To Kill a Mockingbird and everyone feels very good about the role that, you know, Atticus Finch played. Um, and then we um, maybe for Black History Month talk about Rosa Parks for a week and then we move on. That's it. And um, a lot of black people, especially black young people, feel there's no point in their education where they felt proud. We're allowed to feel proud of their heritage. So that's what really drew me into this. I wanted to do something for the young people that I represent, where they can actually go to school and come home and feel like, wow, I learned something about Africa before slavery. I was at a an event with Andrew Melangeli 
Genny, who has been in, um, incarcerated with Nelson Mandela. And I was sitting beside Dennis, the same key person, and he sparked this conversation that I'd actually realized until that day I'd never had with a white person before. So he said to me, you know, it's really weird because he's, he's got one parent that's German and one parent that's South African. It said it's just really weird that they've had their truth and reconciliation in those countries, so to speak. But he just felt that Britain had never really come to terms with their role in the, in the transatlantic slave trade. And I thought, I agree with you. These are conversations that I've been having with uh, black British people for years and years and years. It was just really interesting to hear a white person saying it. Um, and he said that he, he wanted to introduce me to people that he was working with within that space that wanted to have that conversation, difficult as it may be, um, and int introduce it to a wider spectrum. And that's why we think art is important. If you see these globes in public spaces, it makes you engage and be inspired by art. And then it we're just a doorway into, you know, the wider education into it. So you, you look into it, you can go online to some of the programs we'll be offering online and some films we hope to make with partners. But it means that we give you an, a, a kind of engagement that you wouldn't necessarily have had with that subject. Ruth, often in this country, the, the British um, conversation around the slave trade, it focuses on abolition. Why, why do you think we're so bad at discussing the, the, the less comfortable parts of Britain's past? And do you want to tell us a bit more about the aspects of the, the slave trade and, and these globes that the world reimagined is, is going to be exploring? Of course, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. My, my dad is Nigerian. And one thing he always used to tell me growing up is the British are very bad at difficult conversations and they'll do everything to avoid them and this is the ultimate difficult conversation isn't it really you know no one comes out of this looking very good and as Michelle said before it's interesting talking to German friends about the fact their country had to do the work they've got things in their recent history that don't make them feel very proud but the young people go through school learn about that and therefore learn never to repeat those same mistakes again in this country, we paint ourselves as the saviours of slavery. You know, when, when you study in the curriculum, it's all about how we abolish slavery. And a lot of young people internalise that and, and go off into the world thinking, well, you know, Britain did a good job there. It got rid of slavery for the, for the black people. You know, what, why are you complaining? And what's really interesting is the pushback that black people get when they talk about Britain's role in slavery is that people almost get irritated with them. Because it's like, you know, yeah, but we're not the, the bad guys in this. And that's just an educational piece. We need to understand that actually Britain made a lot of money from slavery. It was key and integral in what happened. Millions of Africans died. And that is a, a sombre moment for us not to just push past and forget. And it feels like this whole, um, you need to get over slavery. We've never had the conversation that's enabled us to get over it. We've never talked about how we feel about that. And I think for me, there's also something about slavery being pushed into a black history box. It's not black history. It's everyone's history. It's white history as much as black history. And so this whole project is about how do we open it up so that everyone feels that they can enter into something quite difficult and have a conversation and extricate themselves from it feeling a bit better about it. And Michelle, what is the role of art and culture in opening up this conversation about our history? You know, if you like going beyond formal, I mean, we've been talking on the episode about that the education people get in kids get in schools, but what's the role of art and culture beyond formal education? 
Um, because when when you learn about something, once once you have to get into the artistic mode, it means you have to empathize with that subject. In order for you to be able to translate artistically onto that globe, um, your impression of the subject, you have to have some kind of emotional connection before you can do that. And we think that empathy drives this whole conversation. The need to be able to understand and empathize with, with the pain that so many people have carried for so many years. And that's why we think art is really a crucial way of building that empathy. And Ruth, do you think that there is currently more appetite to rethink our approach to, to British history? You see, that's a really interesting one, because if you look at the news and you look on social media, you would say yes. Um, you know, people's books on race and racism are selling out and it feels like a real moment where Britain's open to this. But if you also look on social media and look at the backlash from people who are saying they don't want to talk about Black Lives Matter, slavery's moved on, let's get over it. I think there are more people willing to have this conversation and there's a lot of curiosity. I think a lot of young people are pushing to learn more. But I think there will be a backlash because people feel resentful sometimes and feel like this is this is not my problem. Why are we dealing with this? I, I didn't do this. And I think there's something that Michelle said about empathy, not necessarily feeling personal guilt but just understanding a process and therefore having deep empathy for someone who doesn't look and sound like you. And now, now the art project is taking place the, the summer after next. I think that's right, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. So it's summer, tw- tw- summer 2022. Mm. I think lots of people will live, be listening to this and feeling really inspired. How can people get involved, support what you're doing and all of that? Perfect. Yes. Um, you can sign up on our website, which is www.theworldreimagined.org. You can sign up, get our newsletter. Those people that want to be involved in organisations on the, on the sponsorship level, we have loads of different opportunities. So please just get in touch there. And uh, yeah, let's talk. But we're very, as you can tell, infused about it and um, just raring to go. Ruth? Yeah, and, and I've had community artists contact me. And what's been really interesting was when this first started, there was, um, you know, we had a lot of interest in London and we've been contacted by people in communities in Cardiff, in Newcastle, um, in other areas saying, we've got stories to, to tell as well about slavery. It's not just about Liverpool and Bristol and London. So what's been really interesting is actually connecting with people um, in areas that you wouldn't necessarily associate with the slave trade who have realised that they also have stories and narratives that they want to share as part of our project. And, and if there are people in communities around this country who are like really, really enthused, and I'm sure there will be by this, you know, that... The, you can sort of match them up to an artist, yes? That's right, yes. So if you're a community organisation, you get in contact with uh, with The World Reimagined, we try and link you up with an, an artist, hopefully a local one, but if not one that, that really resonates with what you want to tell, and then that artist will work with the community to then um, transfer their ideas and decorate that globe together. So it's, it's them participating in how they want to interpret everything that they've learned. It's the same with schools too, that that's what we're having with schools is an artist will then go into the schools, speak with the children and the teachers, and they then determine how that globe will look. Sounds absolutely brilliant. Ruth Ibeg Buna and Michelle Gale, thanks so much for joining us and good luck with your project. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. What did you think, Jeff? I thought it was a brilliant conversation. I feel like I learned a lot 
during it. And something I was struck by from talking to uh, Lavinia and also talking to Ruth and Michelle is that if you are a, a black person growing up and living in this country, you know, there's the sense that you know that history and an, an incredible frustration and disconnect that that history isn't currently part of the country's story and, and the way it's taught in history. And I think we've heard some brilliant ideas about changing that. You're right. I, I suppose a couple of things struck me. I think I think Lavinia talking about what was happening in schools when the history part of this was taught and the way in which the students related it to the contemporary experience, I think is really interesting because you know, we think, okay, let's go and see, teach some history. But history isn't just important to be taught. It's important because of what it sort of opens up about contemporary experiences that people are going through. And I thought that was really interesting. And I was really struck that, you know, neither you nor I knew about the International Slavery Museum. I mean, that that, that says something. And I, I mean, maybe the, you know, I'm struck in the episode a couple of weeks ago, you know, we were talking in general about the issues, but also what are the practical things that we can do? And, and I think we do know some things from this episode we can do. Um, we can support the Black British History uh, campaign. Uh, we can go and visit the Slavery Museum. Uh, and we can also support and get involved in Michelle and Ruth's absolutely brilliant project. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. If you've got thoughts about this week's episode, please do get in touch with us. We read every email. We covet them. We chuckle at them or you learn from them um you can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com and you can uh email us this one comes from dave egan and it's the subject of adult trike as you can tell i'm a bit obsessed hi jeff and ed with the talk of ed getting an adult trike uh, may I suggest a style that is very popular over here in Germany? Re- news has reached Germany about my adult trike. Uh, there are two wheels at the front <laughs> with a box between them, which can be used to ferry children. Though Ed's boys might be a bit old by now. Shopping, picnics, important government papers. Uh, I wish I had those. Uh, and dare I say it, the ingredients to make your own sandwiches. Here is a link to the company that makes them in the UK. <laughs> Other companies are available to give you an idea. Uh, that's Cargo Bike. They're more stable than a two-wheeler and maybe a bit cooler than a normal trike. Well, that is interesting and uh, is important to, to try and be cool. Keep up the good work. Dave from uh, Berlin, would you maybe go in that little bit of the box at the front, Jeff? I could... Happily, yeah. It makes me think about, um, you know, you used to supermarket see trolleys, sidecars. Oh, no. Yes. Well, side it's, cars. It's like a supermarket trolley. Uh, or Dastardly and, <laughs> and Muttley. Do you remember Dastardly and Muttley? Yes. Yeah, you... of course I do. Yeah, so does yeah. that mean I'm Dastardly and you're Muttley? Yeah, didn't stop the pigeon. The, didn't <laughs> shoot the yeah chase the pigeon stop the pigeon oh, stop, yeah yeah was it yeah. stop the pigeon or chase I the pigeon i think it was stop the pigeon yeah yeah right okay over to you all right this comes from uh, imogen seba who says uh, she addresses this to me and says i hope your enviable new bike and helmet your reason to be cheerful this week well, I, didn't, I didn't want to go on about it imogen Im- imogen uh, continues i'm the cyclist that so rudely though accidentally separated you and sarah wow in angel wow. today wow so we went for a bike ride yesterday this is this is when we saw it because you're really into and, your bike aren't you now well i just got it this week it was the first time we've been out oh it, i didn't ask i'm yeah. sorry yeah yeah, because I'd been out on the, the street bikes, the higher bikes, and this was a, the first time we'd been out on our own bikes. So you've really just exciting. bought a bike, have you? 
when uh, i kind of got a friend oh you got the free bike yeah and how is it yeah yeah it's great it's really wonderful we were electric yesterday actually it's no it's just a normal normal push bike right anyway so cycling yesterday and somebody shouted oh i was just listening to your podcast this morning and it was imogen and this caused me to become separated from sarah and because we're you know neither of us have sarah used to cycle in new york but she'd never recycled in london we're not sure what to do at junctions we don't know how to turn right on a main road so she'd gone on way ahead whilst i had a chat with uh imogen who was also a new cyclist like a lot of people um have become during lockdown she said she'd been cycling for a couple of weeks um she says cycling through central London in the middle of a weekday is an upside of furlough leave, which I've been on since Easter. I normally work in theatre uh, with many of my friends and colleagues from this industry under threat of redundancy and some already laid off. I wonder if at this crunch point you could look into some reasons to be cheerful for the arts. In France and Germany, orchestras and theatres are planning for socially distant reopenings uh, with some already rehearsing. And the arts centre I work for, as well as many others in the UK, are making creative packs for 3,000 children in our borough who wouldn't otherwise have access to things like arts and crafts. Amidst bleak news are... stories about theatres being shut for months to come, can you do your thing and give us some reason to be cheerful? Yeah, you know, I can tell you're about to say it's a great idea. I know you're a huge... It is a uh, great idea. Goer. It's yeah. a great idea. There's an absolutely massive threat to the, to, to the creative industries, which are an incredibly proud part of our... kind of important part of our country. So I think it's a great idea. I think we should sort of act on it. Um, this one... Uh, comes from Lucy Charlton. This is really exciting, actually. This one, uh, the, all of them are exciting, but this is this is exciting too. Uh, this is called being bear aware, sort of. Dear Ed and Jeff, my husband are living in Ca- my husband and I are living in Canada at the moment, down by a river in our van. Came back from a really long trip. We hitchhiked from Cambodia to England, then had to rush back to Canada because otherwise we would split be split up due to COVID. Long story. Anyway, while waiting for our spousal sponsorship to be accepted. Uh, he works and I have a lot of time to paint and work on my portfolio. One day I was told there was a mother bear and two baby cubs 50 metres down the road from me. I didn't really know what to do as I was way too hot to sit in the van all day. So I blasted three episodes of Reasons to be Cheerful and sat and painted. Just thought you'd like to know that I was sat being comforted by your lovely voices and hoping that the bear thought I had lots of friends around so it didn't want to come and explore was really inspired by the people and always appreciate the great and positive podcast. Here's some of some pictures of our social isolation in a van and what I was working on. Hope you're both both well. Best wishes, Lucy and Daniel. But he's off gardening in torrential rain. I mean, that's quite a story, isn't it? Incredible. We, we kept the bears at bay. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. We're in the outro. We are. Now, can I ask you something? I don't know. Will you get a member of your family to use their phone to video you test driving this tricycle? Uh, possibly, but if... I do. It will go into the vault along with the trampoline and the, and the hot and the hot, and the hot and the tub ice, video and the and the Icelandic hot tub video. Uh, you, you know what is exciting is I don't replete know with those very strange noises. Yeah, yeah. The um, what's exciting is that they've said that gigs could be making a comeback, but drive-in gigs, and you, you'll be able to get some gigs in in your tricycle. Or the Sinclair C5. Or the Sinclair C5, yeah. Do you think you have to plug them in, the Sinclair C5? Presumably you do. 
to charge it, but that's the same with electric cars. Yeah, exactly. It? Well, but I wonder whether that's the other aspect of this, which is that people just thought, well, what, you know, that's the whole business. We, we, you know, in a way that you wouldn't think now, like plugging in an electric car or, or whatever. You know what I mean? You're saying Sir Clive was a visionary. Well, I don't quite, I'm not sure. I don't know. I've, let, let's see. Let, let, let's let's um, let, let's see whether I maybe I can test drive a C5. If anybody can hook Ed up with a C5, let, let us know, please. Um, oh, we should mention our newsletter, by the way. Yeah, we if should mention our newsletter, definitely. Newsletter. Uh, it is the highlight of many people's weeks already, and that can apply to you too. But you have to sign up first. Uh, um, lots of extra material on the subjects we cover in the podcast, and you can sign up at cheerfulpodcast.com. It's like the bonus bits, but you don't have to pay for them. That's right. You know, you just you just get it like into your email inbox. You know, no questions asked. Um, going deeper into the episode. What what more could you ask for? Well, we should thank the exceptional Zoe Gelber who uh, who puts together the newsletter for us. I'd like to thank our guests, Jeff Lavinia Stennett. Richard Benjamin, Michelle Gale and Ruth Ibegbuna. Our podcast is produced by our friend Emma Corsham with research from the fantastic Joel Pierce, with backup from the aforementioned uh, Zoe Gelber and Fanula DC and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon uh, made the eye dents and the artwork was designed by Henry Cull. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Cheerful.